Hey, good morning, Rock Hills. It's great to be here. My name is Blaine. I'm one of the Blaine Butcher. My family and I, we, we are a part of this church, and I'm on the preaching team here. And this morning, we have, to read the scriptures, the power forward for the Upward Sports Ninjas, first baseman slash outfielder for the McAllister Park Little League Mets, my son Judah, whose name Judah means, um, praise the Lord, his middle name is Frederick, after my father's and after his father's father, and his uh, second middle name is Dale, after Dale Welp, who used to sell hats to this man right here. That's, that's uh, used to be the coach of the Cowboys. I know it's a long time ago, but uh, anyway, so Judah, would you read the scriptures for us? And if children, then heirs, namely heirs of God, and also fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. For their creation eagerly awaits for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it, in hope that their creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we, na- for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together until now. Not only this, but we ourselves also by the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly and eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with endurance. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how we should pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes on behalf of the saints according to God's will. For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, because those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that his Son would be the firstborn among, among many brothers and sisters. Romans eight seventeen through 29 Thank you, Judah. Good job, buddy. All right. And just go ahead and give them that microphone. Just go ahead and walk back there. All right, thanks. Well, hey, uh, this morning, as you might have noticed from that passage, uh, we're going to talk about suffering. And I confess, this is a hard sermon for me to preach because I feel like suffering is such a serious topic. And it's something that I, like many of you, try to avoid. And uh, many of you may have seen this movie right here. I I never saw that movie. You know, it took them two years, 3,000 men, millions of dollars to build this boat, goes across the ocean, it sinks, 1,503 people die. Like, why would I want to see that? I mean, come on, it's a disaster. My wife wants to see this movie right here. Supposedly, Jillian Moore does a great job. She's a great actress, and her performance is wonderful. Well, it's about this lady that gets Alzheimer's, and of course, she slowly loses her memories. She... Um, loses her job. She basically feels like she's going crazy, which in a sense she kind of is because that's what Alzheimer's does. However, when I think about Alzheimer's, I think about this. This is my grandma, uh, Grandma uh, Annabelle, and she was a sweet lady. Uh, Up until I was 30, she would only give me a half glass of milk, just to make sure I drank the whole thing. And uh, 
she would make cookies for my brothers and she'd name them like Brett cookies or Brad cookies because it's their favorite kind. Uh, her and my grandfather literally would pay for my entire family, all my cousins and their family to go to this awesome vacation on the Oregon coast for a, for a week at this retreat center. They pay for everything. It was fantastic. And so my grandma was wonderful, but for the last 10 years of her life with Alzheimer's, she didn't know who I was. Like I'd introduce myself to her. My, my wife, uh, when we got married, Abigail, we came and introduced my wife. And, and every five minutes, she'd say, like, now, who are you again? Okay. You know, this is my grandma. And then towards the end of our li- her life, this is the last time I saw her here. This picture was taken. That's Judah when he was a little kid. And she didn't even know that I was standing next to her. She didn't know there was a baby right there. I mean, she wasn't even aware that we were in the picture. It's amazing that she's looking at the camera, to tell you the truth. Because, you know, the suffering of Alzheimer's was, was, was sad for her. And what was difficult in the early stages, she knew that she was losing these memories. And she would made a million notes on her calendars, notes just everywhere. She'd make notes about the notes. But she knew this was going on. It, it was tough. And so when I think about Alzheimer's, um, I don't think about this movie, I think about my grandma. I don't want to see that movie. It's suffering. I don't want to do that. I try to avoid that. But this morning, our passage talks a lot about suffering. And so I hope that God will use this to encourage us. And uh, why don't we go ahead and pray? Dear Father, I just ask for your help to talk about suffering. I also ask for your help with this microphone that seems to be doing weird stuff. And I pray that you would be glorified uh, in our lives. And I pray that you would encourage people by your Holy Spirit. And Father, I confess that all authority here today belongs to Jesus Christ and that I have nothing to say on my own. And that if anything is said, it's because of you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at this. I get a new mic. Yes. All right. That's a little better. Okay. So back uh, to our passage. Let's go ahead and put on our our first verse here. Here we go. And it is, and if children, then heirs, namely heirs of God, and also fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him, Romans 8, 17. Now, Adam has been talking about this last week, about what it means to be a child of God and all the privileges therein, that we've been adopted and he loves us. Well, the next part of that verse that we just had up there a moment ago talked about that if we suffer with Christ, then we will also be glorified with him. And so when I think about suffering, and for years I thought this up until I started studying this sermon, like to suffer with Christ, isn't that mean that if I have a shirt that says, like, Jesus is cool, and then people make fun of me, then I'm suffering for Christ? Or if I'm in another country, and I was, like, a Muslim, or I was uh, another faith, and then I became a Christian, then the rest of my family really looks down on me, and they really don't like it? And then perhaps in some countries, maybe a communist country, or like or someplace like Albania used to be, like, hey, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I'm following him, won't that mean I'll lose my job, and I could even get beat up? Like, isn't that what it means to suffer with Christ? And I think... That is what it means to suffer for Christ. But to suffer with Christ, I think, is a little bit different. So my main uh, point today of this message is what does it mean to suffer with Christ? So go ahead, the next verse here. For I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. So when you think about suffering, you know, our present sufferings can't be compared to the glory to come. I think about some of the worst physical suffering I've had, and that was I had a kidney stone last year. Now, uh, this kidney stone, go ahead if you want to put the picture up there. It's not mine. It's pretty. Kidney stones are pretty. Beautiful. It looks like a little diamond. You probably wear a little necklace. That'd be, that'd be really nice. So uh, anyway, so kidney stones, you can see they're a little jagged. And apparently, for, for men, this is like the worst pain that men can feel. And I remember my kidney stone, I was in the emergency room, and I didn't want to be on the bed. I wanted to be on the cold cement floor with my legs straight up, kind of 
moving around, trying to find the place where it hurt less. You know, the other thing when you have a lot of pain, you get tunnel vision. You can only think or see a couple things. I remember that. And one of the things I distinctly do not remember is I do not remember thinking, this present suffering uh, is nothing compared to the glory to be revealed. I, those thoughts did not enter my mind. When you get suffering like that, you think, when will this suffering end? Like, I just want this to go away. And the thing that's ironic to me about, you know, men and kidney stones, you know, kidney stones like this big. My wife had six kids, delivered them, and babies' heads are, you know, like this big. And so I'm like, okay, it's the men's greatest suffering is like this, woman's is like this. Hmm, not a lot of comparison there. So, but when you think about suffering, if you take it to another level, um, I think I would say, and probably most of us would say, there's suffering that we can have that is a lot greater than physical pain. There's things that happen to us that we don't understand, like that we didn't necessarily deserve this, like someone did something to us, maybe when we were kids, like that kind of suffering can go for years and years, like it can, it's ongoing. And so when you think about our present suffering can't be compared to glory, that's just difficult to understand. I have, here's a quote from somebody here. Regarding the affliction that happened, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of living. This person had suffering so bad, like they didn't even want to live anymore. It was so bad. Who, who, who wrote that? Yeah, Paul. We get the next little slide on there. 2 Corinthians 1.9. So Paul, writer of the Bible, was so depressed that he's like, I wonder if life is even worth living right now. So if I get depressed, if you get depressed, maybe that's not a sin. If the guy who wrote most of the New Testament was that depressed that he wondered, like, is life even worth living? Then perhaps depression isn't a sin. Perhaps we're normal when we have those kind of thoughts. And so when this passage says that our present suffering can't be compared to the glory to come, like, I believe it. I believe it is true. I believe it by faith, but I don't always feel it. And perhaps in the midst of your suffering, you don't always feel it either. So what does that really mean? How can present sufferings not be compared to coming glory? Next slide here. Because he says, you know, can't compare it. Next slide. I don't know. Profound sermon, huh? I don't know. I don't really know. I mean, I believe it's true. I mean, the Bible says that there will be no more tears, no more sun being upon us. We'll have a glorified body that doesn't get sick, doesn't die, isn't tired. But yet, when you're in those present suffering, it's hard to really think about that. Though I believe it's true, I have that hope. All right, next passage. For creation eagerly awaits for the revelation of the sons of gods. For the creation was subject to fertility, not willingly. So here's the deal. Creation was subject to fertility, subject to suffering, subject to pain. Like, who would do that? You know, in our, I think in our Western viewpoint, we think, hey, being a Christian, you follow God, it's all good. Like, God gives you a better job, better family, you have better health. Like, things are so much better with the Lord. And I believe that's true to a point. I do. But who was the one that created all this suffering? Next passage here. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. This is the problem of pain in its simplest form. And so a lot of times we have this mentality, like, hey, if God really loves me, like, I wouldn't be going through this. I mean, come on, he, he would stop it. He wouldn't want me to suffer, would he? Next passage. Uh, next slide here. So creation was subject to fertility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it. So God made this world that there would be suffering. God made this world so that there would be consequences for the evil that is within this world. And so 
So the suffering in this world points to the fact that our world is not right. It's not the way that it should be. It's kind of like this. This is a trite example. You get the next slide. Next two slides here. Well, he's subjected with hope. There's a reason why God did it. He didn't hope. But if you could go to the next slide here. All right. So that creation itself will be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. So what God did is he made suffering, and it's a consequence of evil, but the suffering tells us that something's wrong. If we go to the next slide. So numerous times I've played sports, and I've hurt my knees from time to time. And I remember several times, uh, either knee, I've been laying in bed, and if I just turned my knee just a little bit, excruciating pain just shot through my whole leg, just shot through my body. And so I had to have my knee in just the right position. Sometimes I had it wrapped just to stop that pain. But that pain was a good thing for my leg because my knee was hurt. And if I were to put a lot of weight on that knee or to twist it the wrong way when it wasn't healed, I would hurt it worse. And so the pain said, hey, something's wrong. Don't do this. And it helped me, my knees to heal. So today my knees are pretty healthy and it's because of the pain. Now you've heard of the disease leprosy. The thing with leprosy, one of the things it does why people get deformed and they go blind is because they don't feel pain. And so someone with leprosy could get a little rock in their shoe and they could continue walking all the way to the store with a rock in their shoe. And pretty soon that rock pushes through the skin. It pushes through the muscle, pushes through the ligament, goes all the way to the bones, sometimes breaks the bone and they lose a toe or lose part of their foot. It's because they didn't have the pain to tell them something's wrong. You got to stop. People with leprosy go blind because they don't have the nerves in their eyes to tell them to blink, to keep the moisture there, and their eyes dry out, and they go blind because there's no pain. And so, though while I don't like pain, I don't enjoy it, pain and suffering does something good for us in this world. It tells us that we are in need of a Savior, that this world is not the way that it needs to be. C.S. Lewis said this, We can ignore pleasure. But pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Every person knows that something is wrong when she or he is being hurt. Now, when I studied this passage we're going through, there is so much you can say. I felt like I could write five books upon this passage, like long books. And I know people have. And so I'm not going to cover everything about suffering, everything about how God allows suffering. But I do want you to know that God does not enjoy suffering. He's not up there saying, oh, I want someone to suffer. I don't think he does that. But he did make the world that people will, cons- will suffer the consequences of evil. So if you think about the Holocaust, and you think about all the people that died, all the people that were tortured by the Nazis and by Hitler, God, I know that his heart broke for that. And yet he did set the world up that when there was great evil, there would be great suffering. And it would help us realize just how horrible sin is. Next passage. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together until now. And so when you look at this passage, what does it mean to suffer with Christ? I think there's kind of two things. You can either suffer with Christ or you can suffer without Christ. But the whole world is suffering. You can't get away from suffering. When I think about suffering without Christ, I think about this kid I knew in eighth grade. His name was Bobby. It's not his real name. But I moved to this place in eastern Oregon uh, called Stanfield. Stanfield had about 1,221 people and 50,000 cows. And uh, it, it was a nice little town. I, I really like Stanfield. I really do. Don't get me wrong. I love living in a small town. And so uh, Stanfield, I met this guy, uh, Bobby, and I hung out with Bobby and during spring break. We did a lot. I just moved in. And well, one day, Bobby and I are in one of our grocery stores. We had two grocery stores. 
pretty amazing. And uh, both of them were smaller than this room here. Uh, both of them had about three aisles. And they had this thing in there that they don't have in grocery stores as often anymore. And it was in kind of this like book cabinet. And in the book cabinet, um, there was like a screen and it was a game as a video game. And every time you played it, you had to put a quarter in. Like it's, I know a lot of you kids are like, what? That's weird. But yeah, they had these things. There's arcade games. And so uh, Bobby and I were in there doing these arcade games. It was no big deal. You know, it's kind of fun. Well, another kid from our school walks in. His name's Matt. And Matt is the quarterback for the football team. Matt has bigger muscles than most people ever have when he's in eighth grade. Matt can uh, walk on his hands all the way across the room, back and forth, and do all these amazing things. So Matt walks in, and, and that's not Matt's real name. And I'm like, hey, Matt. And uh, he's like, hey, Blaine. And then uh, anyway, Matt buys something and walks out. And then Bobby turns to me and says, you know what? Normally, when Matt sees me, he punches me really hard and tells me to get out of his sight and tells me I can't be in the store anymore. The only reason why he didn't punch me and tell me to leave the store is because you were with me. I was like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> that's pretty freaky. And uh, so as I went to school, I realized that uh, Bobby isn't very well liked by other kids. And we have this teacher in eighth grade, and she's like super cool teacher. Like she's the cool English teacher. Everybody likes her. And she gives nicknames for all the kids. They have these nicknames in the school, in the class. Like it's, it's a pretty cool thing. Well, Bobby's nickname is not cool at all. Like, I can't believe the teacher would let Bobby have this nickname. And it's, it's a horrible nickname for a little eastern Oregon rural town. Like, it's like about the worst nickname you can have, and yet the teacher's cool with it. Like, that's Bobby's nickname. We'll just go with it. And so I get to know a little bit more about Bobby. I find out that um, his mom and dad own the most popular restaurant in our area. It's called Grandma's, and uh, it's always packed. Tons of cars in there. And apparently, uh, Bobby's mom and dad are at the restaurant all the time. That's, that's where they're always at. And after school, Bobby has to work in that restaurant, and they don't pay him, from what I hear. I don't know. This, this is what I've heard. They don't even pay him. And so as we get into high school, I wish I could say that I was cool to Bobby, and I invited him to church in the youth group, and I hung out with him, and I didn't care what people said, but I did care. I, I wasn't mean to Bobby, like I never pushed him or said mean things, and I might have said hi once in a while, but I didn't hang out with Bobby anymore. I never went out over to his house again. I just, he kind of just disappeared. Even though my school only had 150 people in it, my high school, I don't even remember Bobby being there but one or two times, and usually they were not very nice times, uh, something, something happening to him. Well, eventually, uh, you know, school was over, and uh, I saw Bobby after school, and he just looked so different. Like, I don't know how to describe it. Like, it was Bobby, but there's something. He had this look. Like, it was a scary look. Like, I heard he'd been in prison for a little while. He just had a scary look. Like, I didn't say hi to him. I didn't say nothing. I was scared. And he wasn't big and strong or muscular. He just had a scary look. And so I think about suffering. I think about Bobby, and I think everybody suffers. And you know, Bobby, in my mind, I don't know that he had a relationship with the Lord. I don't know if he knew Christ. He definitely didn't have believers around him praying with him. He's just suffering alone without Christ. Like, that's a miserable place to be. All right, next passage. Not only this, but we ourselves also who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And so last week, Adam talked about the adoption mentality that even though we've been redeemed and even though we have God as our Father, sometimes we still wonder, hey, uh, you know, when's the next meal going to be? Hey, someone really going to be for me after school to pick me up? Even though that's set, we're still waiting. And so this passage uh, says that we're still eagerly awaiting for the redemption of our bodies, that we're not in the place where God is going to have us be yet. That's still to come. All right, next passage. Now you might notice in these two verses, the one word is kind of used a lot. Do you see that? I, I, I highlighted in yellow so you could see that. All right. Uh, 
For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen, or hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with endurance. And so when you look at this word hope, what does that mean? When I think about hope, I think about this. Houston Astros, 2019 spring training. Like, honestly, I really hope they win the World Series. It's my favorite baseball team. I hope they win it. However, that is really not the definition of biblical hope. That's more of a wish. Like, it could happen. It might happen. It might not. There's a good shot it could happen, but close your ears if you're an Astros fan. It's possible the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Dodgers or even the Cubs could win the World Series. Even that could happen. But um, it's my desire that they win, but it's not hope. Next passage, or next uh, slide. This is the 2017 Houston Astros. This is after game seven when they got the last out. Like, they won the World Series, and now they hope to get the trophy, the World Series trophy. Like, they're going to get it because they won. Like, it's going to happen. They still hope to get that trophy. They don't have it yet, but it's going to happen. And that is the biblical definition of hope. Like, it's going to happen. It's not like something you wish for, like, oh, I wish the Astros would win this year in 2019. No, it's like, hey, they won. They got the last out in in game seven. They won. They're getting the trophy. It's going to happen. They're going to get that trophy. And, And, of course, they did. So next slide. So if we think about hope, looking at the Houston Astros, in 2019, for them to win the World Series, right now that's a wish. That's a wish that they'd get the trophy. We hope it happens. But in 2017, it was in a biblical way, that was a hope. They had the seventh uh, game win, seven, so they won game seven, had that last out. They're getting the trophy. And that's what the Bible talks about hope. It's going to happen. We don't have it yet, but it's going to happen. All right, next passage. So in hope, we were saved. The hope that is uh, seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope, for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with endurance. So we believe it's going to happen. So in suffering, we know that things are going to be better. They're going to, it's going to happen. It's not like, I hope it gets better. It's going to get better, even if it may not be, until after we die. Next passage. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know how we should pray. So when we're in the midst of suffering, like I said, when I had that kidney stone, I wasn't thinking like, oh, I can't wait for my glorified body. It's going to be so wonderful. Things are going to be so much better. I wasn't thinking that. I was like, I want to survive. And so there's times when things get so bad, we don't even know how to pray. Like, we don't know how we should pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Like, the Spirit, this is God. Because you know that we Christians believe that there's one God, but that there's three persons, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit. So the Spirit is praying for us. So God himself is praying for us in our suffering. Next pass, next uh, part. It says inexpressible groanings. Like, if you think about that, what is an inexpressible groaning? Well, that's to me is suffering. Like, God prays with us in suffering. He suffers with us in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our confusion. God is suffering with us in those times. Like, he is present with us. And the thing I like about these verses, it says that if God is praying for us, I mean, come on, if God's praying for us, is he going to answer that prayer? Yeah, God's going to answer his own prayer. So, you know, if God prays for us, whatever we need, he's going to answer that prayer, and it's going to happen. Next passage. And it goes on in Romans 20, uh, 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for the good, for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All this suffering, all these things that happen in the world, when we are suffering with Christ, we can be assured that God is using that for good. Now, I may not know why this is happening, and I, this isn't to say that, 
suffering is deserved, like you did something, therefore you suffer. No, we're in a sinful world, and, and the whole creation is suffering, not necessarily because of stuff they did directly, but because we're in a sinful world. But God uses the suffering in this sinful world to help us become more like Christ. Next passage. Because those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And so God is using the things in this world to help us to become like Jesus Christ, that we might have the love of Christ, that we might have joy, that we might have peace, we might have patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God uses suffering to help us become the people that he wants us to be, that we can love God and experience his fullness, that we, in turn, can be like Christ and help other people. So a quick review here. What does it mean to suffer with Christ? And again, like I said, there is much more beyond what I could say in 20 minutes. But here are some things from the passage we looked at. It means we suffer with the hope of redemption of the whole world, and also for ourselves personally. It means we suffer with confidence that the suffering will one day end forever. It means we suffer while knowing the suffering has a purpose. It is not in vain. You know, that can be the worst thing to be suffering and think like, why is this happening? Why is this happening? It doesn't make sense. That is a difficult place to be. But yet, by God's grace, with faith, with hope, we don't see it, but with hope we can believe there's a purpose for this suffering. It means we suffer together with our Christian brothers and sisters. If you look in this passage, nowhere did it say, you suffer by your, you suffer, or I suffer, or this suffer. It always said we. It was always a plural pronoun because we suffer together. And so if we suffer together, we should pray for one another and our suffering. You should ask for prayer. My wife, Abigail, and I, after we got married, uh, it took us a little bit longer than she wished to have to get pregnant the first time. And so, you know, it was like a year or something. I don't know what it was. But for her, it was pretty hard. And we finally did. We got pregnant. We were really excited about it. And I remember we were about three months into it, and I came home from work, and um, she didn't say anything. But I knew, I knew something was wrong, and she, she didn't say anything, but I, I pretty much knew what it was. But um, we'd had a miscarriage, and while I was at work, something actually came out of her body. Some tissue came out of her body, and we knew this, 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 wasn't, this wasn't good. Like, this wasn't normal, and it was devastating. So we did go to the doctor to confirm that it was a miscarriage, that you know, the baby was, was no longer with us. And um, well, a little bit later after that, by God's grace, we got pregnant again. But we didn't want to tell people that we were pregnant again because like, we were just like, what if it ends in another miscarriage? What if it happens again? Just, again, like, if you have a miscarriage, there's really no shame in it, but yet it feels shameful. It feels like something's wrong. Like, but yet, what we need to do is we need to ask for prayer for the things that we struggle with. We need to ask for help because we're together. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. But would you raise your hand if you'd be willing to pray for somebody if they asked you to pray for them? Would you raise your hand? Yeah, if you'd be willing to pray for someone. Look around. Look how many hands there are. So, look, if you ask somebody in this, uh, this group to pray for you, they're going to pray for you. So, there's no shame in that. In fact, we even, at the end of every service, have people up here to pray for you and to pray for me. Like, I've asked for prayer. Uh, this has been one of the most difficult years of my life, um, just Anyway, it's a lot of things I don't want to go into right now, but it's been hard. And there's times I've come up and asked for prayer, and I've asked my friends to pray for me, and, and it does help. It helps a lot. My circumstances haven't changed, but yet it's so good to know that there's other people that are praying with me, that I'm not alone in this. And that can be for all of us in suffering. Next passage. It means we suffer. It, it means when we suffer, we know that God is suffering with us. We are not alone. God suffers with us. The Spirit groans with, with groanings that are inexpressible. God suffers with us. And the Bible says that Jesus, when he was on earth, was a man of sorrows. 
that he bore our pains. He, he bore the things upon himself. And so, in closing, I have a story I'd like to read for you that reminds us of what Jesus is like when it comes to our suffering. I straw a strange sight. I stumble upon a mystery most strange, like nothing my life, my street sense, my sly tongue had ever prepared me for. Hush, child, hush now, and I will tell it to you. Even before the dawn one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, both bright and new, and he was calling in a clear, tenor voice, Rags! Ah, the air was foul, the first light filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags! New rags for old! I take your tired rags! Rags! Now, this is a wonder. I thought to myself, for this man stood six feet four, and his arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this, than to be a ragman in the inner city? I followed him. My curiosity drove me, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart. Quietly, he walked to the woman, stepping around tin cans, dead toys, and pampers. Give me your rag, he said so gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from, it, from her eyes. She looked up, and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. And then, as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did something strange. He put the stained handkerchief to his own face. And then he began to weep, to sob as grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking, yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who could not turn away from mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for old! In a little while, when the sky showed gray above the rooftops and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty, blood soaked her bandage, a single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity and he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me your rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek, and I will give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head. The bonnet he set on hers, and I gasped at what I saw, for the bandage went, with the bandage went the wound, and against his brow it rounded darker, more substantial blood, his own. Rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both the sky now and my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more the hurry. Are you going to work? He asked a man who leaned against the telephone pole. The man shook his head. The, man, the ragman pressed him. Do you have a job? Are you crazy? Sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket, flat, the cuff stuffed into the pocket. He had no arm. So, said the ragman, give me your jacket and I'll give you mine. Such quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket. So did the ragman, and I trembled at what I saw. For the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve, and when the other put it on, he had two good arms, thick as tree limbs. But the ragman had only one. Go to work, he said. 
After that, he found a drunk lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man, hunched, wheezing, and sick. He took that blanket and wrapped it around himself, but for the drunk, he left clean clothes. And now, I had to run to keep up with the ragman. Though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at his forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling from drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old, and sick. Yet he went with terrible speed. On spider's legs, he skittered through the alleys of the city, this mile and the next, until he came to its limits, and then he rushed beyond. I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow, and yet I needed to see where he was going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him so. The little old ragman came to the landfill. He came to the garbage pits. And then I wanted to help him in what he did, but I hung back, hiding. He climbed a hill. With tormented labor, he cleared a little space on that hill. Then he sighed. He laid down. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. And he covered his bones with an old army blanket. And he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junken car and wailed and mourned as one who has no hope because I... had come to love the ragman. Every other face faded in the wonder of this man, and I cherished him, but he died. I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know. How could I know? That I slept through Friday night and Saturday and it's night too. But then on Sunday morning, I was awakened by a violence. Light, pure, hard, demanding light slammed against my sour face, and I blinked and I looked, and I saw the last and first wonder of all. There was the ragman folding the blanket, most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive. And besides that, healthy, there was no sign of sorrow nor of age, and all the rags that he'd gathered shined for cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head and trembled for all that I'd seen, and I myself walked up to the ragman. I told him my name with shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. Well, then I took my clothes off in that place, and I said to him with dear yearning in my voice, Dress me. He dressed me. My Lord, he put new rags on me, and I am a wonder beside him, the ragman, the ragman, the Christ. So what does it mean, next slide here, what does it mean to suffer with Christ? It means that when we suffer, we know that God is suffering with us, that we're not alone. He's with us. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for your word today. And Father, I pray that I know all of us here today go through suffering, have been through suffering, may even now be in pretty deep suffering. Lord, I'd help I pray that you would help us to remember that you are with us, that you would comfort us, that you would help us to ask others to pray for us, that we would be together, that you'd help us to have hope, that you're going to change the circumstances, that things are not going to be the way they are, and that there is meaning in our suffering. It's not in vain. So, Father, I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.